0: Good morning. They're working on bringing the lights up so I can see you. Not that light. That's sure the It's good to. No, you can turn it on, that's why. That way they can see me. Turn it off. Hey, it's good to see you this morning. For those of you visiting, I do need to tell you that my speech is a little slow and slurry because of a disease I'm blessed with. And um, so I didn't go out free drinking for New Year's Eve (laughs) or anything like that. And I tell you that because it makes me less self-conscious about it. So with that, um, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I'm, my name is Steve. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. It's my blessing to be able to bring the word. Um, welcome, Gregorys. You're back in town for a brief time. It's Tyler's birthday. Connor and Jess are engaged. Let's see, any other family business we need to take care of? We're going to continue in the book of Hebrews. Actually, we're going to finish the book of Hebrews this morning. So if you'd like, you can open up to chapter 13. And as you're doing that, let me wish you all a Happy New Year as we move toward 2019. Crazy, right? 2019. Man, I'm getting old. But uh, let me uh, go ahead and read a a bit, then we'll pray and we'll dive into what the Lord has for us. So, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. And Lord, we ask that all that would distract us, whether it be voice or situations and circumstances of life, uh, Lord, that you would take it all away in this moment and focus us in on you. May our hearts be receptive. May our ears hear what you have for us this morning. And may we leave here changed and more conformed to the image of your Son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. So as we dive in to chapter 13, it's going to come very rapid fire it's almost like the writer of Hebrews has gotten 12 chapters into it, thinking, Oh man, this letter's getting long. I have so much more to share with you, but let me just throw it at you really fast. And so there is a bunch of instruction for Christian living. Here in chapter 13, this is a transition that actually started back in chapter 11 with the Hall of Faith and then through chapter 12, where so much of the book of Hebrews had been instructional as to who Christ is, why he's better than anything else. Remember, again, that this letter was written to the Hebrews, hence the name, the book of Hebrews, the Jews. And it was all about addressing the fact that though they had started off in faith, they were now being swayed back to following the old religious system. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote this to systematically dismantle all those other things that they could place their faith and trust in to establish the simple truth that if you pick one, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the angels. He's better than the priests. He's better than the law and the sacrificial system. He is not just better, he's the best. And as he gets into Hebrews 11, he establishes this one simple fa- fact that we've read already, that the just shall live by faith. And in 11, he says, this faith its the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders of old have obtained a good testimony. And he launches into describing some of those elders in chapter 11, but it really culminates with, there are so many more I could tell you about, yet each of them died never having received the promise that they rested their hope upon. Because they all were forward-looking toward the cross, toward the Messiah, toward the Savior that had been promised them. And they were living their life in faith upon the promise of this coming Messiah. And they all died never having seen the fulfillment of that promise. But we here today don't look forward toward the cross. We look backward. Having experienced the fullness of that promise, the coming of the Messiah, our Savior Jesus. And we've been called as Christians now to live by faith. And that really, as we spin forward through 12, and now into 13, it's all a description of what life in faith looks like. What is the outworking of faith in a person's life? Now, no one chapter of a book can hold the answer to that question. But the writer tries to fit a lot of it in to chapter 13 for sure, but it's not exhausted by any stretch of the imagination. So the emphasis of this chapter is truly living a life in, by, with an outworking of faith in our lives, rightly directed toward Jesus. And so he opens up with this first instruction. Let's pause there and say this. Tomorrow is December 31st, New Year's Eve. And on Tuesday, we launch in to a new year. And at midnight tomorrow night, the whiteboard of your life that has as its header 2019 begins to be written. Some of you, they'll say, they're sleeping at midnight tomorrow night. You know, Midnight plus one second, they're sleeping. For some, it'll say you're up watching the ball drop on TV from Whitefish, Montana, or wherever you find yourself. I'm secure in the knowledge. It will not say they were in a bar getting drunk, but it, the pen of your life begins to write on the whiteboard tomorrow night at midnight in 1 second 2019 we sit on this end we have no clue what's going to be written on that board anybody know what 2019 holds for you any more than when you reflect back on 2018. How many surprises? Both good, not so good, struggles, difficulties, loss of loved ones, joys with the coming of grandchildren. Fill in the blank. 2018 for sure when we were sitting here a year ago. It probably didn't look like the way it worked out. in 2019 will either. And as you go into that year, everybody makes a resolution. I don't know what yours is going to be. I know if I go to the gym on January 1st, it'll have more people in it than it did yesterday when I was there. And two weeks later, it'll be back to normal. (laughs) Right? I want to put before you that as we work our way quickly through chapter 13 this morning, that this becomes a part of your resolution. To live a life of faith as described in chapter 13, and even more than what's described in chapter 13. But can we all resolve here this morning that we want 2019 to be the year where we live at a greater level of faith than any other year previous. And make that choice sincerely and seek after living a life of faith that will prove that out. So he starts, he says, let brotherly love continue. That word from for love there is not agape, but phileo, it's where we get our city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, though if you've been there, I sometimes wonder if they live up to that name. But it is this fondness, this affection toward your brothers and sisters. It's really a love within Christian community where we love on one another. Let brotherly love continue. As in, it's been there, but don't stop doing it. Don't stop seeking to love one another in the Lord. And brotherly love is truly wrapped up in agape love. It's now working within the body Of that unconditional love that Jesus has for us that he calls us to have for others. And then specifically, under that umbrella of agape love, you have this love that calls us to love the brethren. To have a fondness for, an affection, a caring, a concern This Christmas, I got a gift from someone I didn't expect to get a gift from, not because they're not a giving person, but just it was unexpected. And I brought that gift this morning. It's this Yeti coffee mug. Now, if you know me, You know how special of a gift this is. I'm not addicted to coffee. (laughs) Some might disagree with that. But I want to believe that the person who got this gift for me, they thought about me. They thought about things I like. They thought, man, here's a gift I can get Steve. He loves coffee. And if you like coffee and you like warm coffee, let me recommend this mug right here. Because this mug, an hour later, the coffee is almost as warm is when you pour it out of the coffee pot. And I want to believe that thought, oh, man, I really care about Steve. I want to give him a gift that will mean something to him. Now, of course, they might have been just walking down the aisle, just throwing things in, going, I drink coffee. We'll get them this. But I want to believe there was a fondness, an affection, a caring um, that went into that gift. So I'm going to ascribe that to them, and, and that's how I'm going to choose to look at the gift. But that is the level of care that we're called to as brothers and sisters, to know one another, to care about one another, to be involved in each other's lives, to be there in the good times and the struggles, to show a kindness, a fondness, a care, an affection for one another that transcends what this world knows of conditional care And love and concern. And that plays itself out. You know, there are so many verses. By the way, we could spend all morning on verse 1 of chapter 13 and not exhaust what the word says about what it means to love one another. But the scriptures make it very clear they will know that we're his, Christ disciples by our love for one another. So it's not just about the effect of loving one another within these four walls. I look out at you and I say, well, surely there's a group of people I could love. But it's not just about loving you. It's about others seeing the love I have for you. That they would then know that I'm a disciple of Christ and see a level of love, of fondness, of affection that every single person longs for and wants yet in this world can never find. Such that that love that I can display to each of you would draw others to the Savior who first loved me and gives me the capacity to love in that way. Does that make sense? And this is part of living by faith. I don't understand people who say I'm a Christian and I don't go to church. I don't understand that. Because there's an aspect of being a Christian that should draw me to the body, that should draw me to fellowship, that should draw me to being around others who are like-minded, that they might be able to love me with a brotherly love and I might be able to love them with a brotherly love so that the world could know that we're his disciples. That's what love's all about. That's the love that overlooks a multitude of sins. It's that love that though my brother or sister steps on my toe, I'm going to believe the best and allow for them to make that right. It's the love that compels me when I step on my brother's and sister's toe to then go back and make that right. It's that kind of love and care and affection that we're called to. It's that kind of love that is now working of a true faith in Jesus. So he says, let that kind of love continue. You've had it, or you have it. If you had it, go back and get it. If you have it, continue in it. It's not always easy. But it's always worth it. Both to yourself, to the other person, and within the body. Now some outworking specifically of that kind of love gives us when he says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, He doesn't say, go look for strangers. He says, entertain strangers. Let's first understand within context what's being shared here. In that day, there wasn't a firebrand hotel on the corner. There wasn't a Holiday Inn Express on every city. In every city, there weren't hotels, per se, like there were or are today. And though there were B and B's, as there were in that day, there surely wasn't enough to go around many times. And so, Christians that would travel would actually carry letters of recommendation. And the instruction here is if somebody comes who is a stranger to you, you should entertain them. He adds in there, by doing so, there have been times where people have even unwittingly entertained angels. And we think of Abraham of the Old Testament or Lot. Both of them entertained angels without Realizing it at least on the front end, they figured it out on the back end for sure. If you go back and read those stories, but surely the the point being made here is be hospitable, people. It's now working a brotherly love, is to be hospitable and to care and to entertain and to. Help take care of each other. Last night, um, though they're not strangers, we went out to dinner with some friends, and of course he was quicker on the draw than me for the bill. And they paid the bill, and they entertained, in that sense, a caring of being hospitable. Unfortunately for them... I'm not an angel, but uh, (laughs) good autumn for being caring and entertaining and hospitable. Now, we could also extend that, though, to the stranger, to the person we don't know, to the person we're not even sure if they're a believer or not. In that situation, we need to use discernment. I remember being at a gas station many years ago in Las Vegas. We lived there. For those of you who are visiting, we weren't there for any other reason than it was home. And yes, there's Christians who live in Las Vegas. And I was sitting there pumping my gas and a guy walked up to me and asked me if he could have a couple bucks so he could go in and get some food. To me, he was a stranger. And he looked even stranger than a stranger. Now in that situation, what do you do? Do you give him a couple bucks? Wisdom and discernment says no. My response was, hang on, let me finish pumping my gas. I'll take you inside and buy you whatever you like. Oh, no, no, I don't need you to do that. Just give me the couple bucks. No, no, not a problem. Be glad to. Well, actually, I was going to go across the street to Popeye's Chicken. No problem. Once you walk over there, I'll meet you there and buy you a meal. At that point, four-letter expletives and colorful metaphors come out of his mouth. He didn't want my money for food, obviously. In those situations, should we be caring? Should we try to be hospitable as the Lord leads with wisdom and discernment? But be a hospitable people. The outworking of faith in Christ is there's been no other person ever who's come and been hospitable to the strangest of strangers, you and me, than Christ. He is the ultimate in hospitality. He's the ultimate in hospitality every time you sit down and partake of a meal. He's still being hospitable by providing for you all that you need. In life, and I look out, and most of you took showers and had breakfast, and he's still being hospital. If we're going to be like Christ, we must have a love for the brethren, and it should also work itself out in hospitality and also in remembering those who are in prison. And those who are being mistreated. I spent three years in a ministry that ministered to men primarily, um, who were Christians being released from state prison in Illinois. During that time, I learned more about the redemptive power of Jesus Christ in a person's life than at any other point in my Christian walk as I saw men whose lives literally had been destroyed through the cares and concerns of this world, who lived a life that caused them to be sentenced five, seven, ten, twenty years to a state prison who now are being released and in prison they became believers in the Lord there's no greater ministry than to minister to our brothers and sisters in prison there are forgotten people And then we add to that even more so, what about our brothers and sisters around this world who aren't in prison because of wrongdoing, but simply because they believe in our Savior, Jesus, who find themselves in prison. When was the last time you lifted up a prayer? for your persecuted brothers and sisters. I don't say that uh, like, bring down hellfire judgment upon you, except we're, he, the writer, makes this point. We're a part of the same body. We're a part of the body of Christ, and when one part of your body is being mistreated, what do you do? I use this analogy all the time. If you're out swinging a hammer at a nail, and you miss the nail, and you hit your nail, your thumbnail, I've never saw a person throw down the hammer and start beating the other hand who that was swinging the hammer. What happens? The hand grabs the thumb. Some of you stick it in your mouth and start sucking on it. You run into the house for ice. You start icing. It. You start tending to and caring for. This small little digit that's a part of your body. We have brothers and sisters who are a part of the body of Christ today around this world suffering for no other reason than they believe in Jesus. How can we minister to them? Well, I'll give you one simple way. Remember them and pray for them. At least we can do that. And if the Lord calls you to do more than that, then follow the Lord's leading. There's great ministries, a Voice of the Martyrs, that minister within those environments. But there are people today persecuting for their faith. I know for some of us, It's hard to believe, but I've looked in the eyes of those people. Children who have lost parents simply because they love the Lord. Children who watched their parents murdered in front of them and were grabbed by somebody else at the last minute flee. Wives who have lost husbands. Husbands who have lost wives. Brothers and sisters. Parents who have lost children. All around this world. Let's remember it's part of loving the body. It's part of loving the brethren. Caring for one another. Right here and now we have that opportunity. We have the opportunity by being hospitable. We have the opportunity by remembering and praying for those who are imprisoned and being mistreated. We have the opportunity to hold marriage in high regard. That's part of what it means as a body to be loving one another in community is to hold marriage in high regard. We live in a world today that marriage has no honor. Marriage is social convenience. It's a tax write-off. But in the beginning, God the Father walked the first bride, Eve, down the aisle and presented her to the first husband, Adam. And in that day, marriage was instituted not by society, not for social convenience, not as a legal excuse for living together, it was ordained and commissioned by God. That's why the book of Ephesians places such a high view of marriage, such that when we look at one another's marriage, we should see Jesus and the church. Marriages to be held in high honor. For those of you who are married here today, marriage is to be held in high honor. Where is your heart in regard to marriage? For those of you who are engaged today, do you understand what you're entering into? It's high honor. And it should be esteemed. For those of you who look forward one day to being married, start today to understand what the Bible has to say about marriage. Marriage should be held in high honor. And specifically within marriage... When we hold marriage and we understand what God says about interpersonal relationships between men and women, we will then respond rightly in those relationships such that we do not diminish the marriage bed. And the marriage bed would be undefiled. And everybody in this room knows we live in a culture that does not teach this. It teaches everything but this. But in the Bible, before the Lord, marriage is a sacred thing. Next to our relationship with Jesus it becomes the highest order of relationship on earth such that men and women could actually be drawn to Jesus through seeing a marriage situated and founded upon him. So all of this is that outworking of brotherly love let your conduct we got to move. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Look here's let me just put this simply and plainly. I see so many people today fighting to grab hold of that which the Lord does not have for them in this moment while despising the very things that he's given them. That is a life of covetousness. It's a life of wanting more than you have. There's nothing wrong with trying to better ourselves. There's nothing wrong with having stuff unless the stuff becomes the end of the means for you such that you get the new car and it gets a scratch on it, so you take it in and get a new one. How many times are we so unfulfilled in life because we don't have things that we want? My question for myself, when I feel that way, is why am I not content with what the Lord's given me? Because if he's truly sovereign, and he's truly in control of my life, then what I have and what I don't have rests in his hands. Right? Right? So let's stop being a people like this world who's trying to add one more thing, like the millionaire only wants two million. And the two millionaire only wants three million. And they live their life chasing after it, but how many people... How many times do we have to read the story of the person who chased after the next million at the end of the life, looking back and realizing it was all vanity? It was all vapor. And you really don't get to pull a U-Haul to your funeral because you don't take it with you. And all of a sudden, you begin to realize you missed it. You missed the important things of life. Let our lives be, our conduct, conduct be, without covetousness, but be content, as Paul himself in Philippians said in chapter 4, Right? I've learned to be content with wherever I am and whatever I have. I've learned to abound. I've learned to be abased. The only thing we should be discontented is how close we are to Jesus. We should never be content and say, okay, that's close enough. We should always be diving deeper, trying to grow more in Christ. But in all other other areas we come back to, he will never leave me nor forsake me. He will always be right there. And because he won't forsake me, he'll always give me what I need, sometimes even what I want he'll give me i.e. Yeti I didn't even know I wanted a Yeti and he gave me a Yeti because that's the God that we serve he will never leave you nor forsake you And in our language, the impact of that statement, we don't get it. There's actually five negatives in that. He will never, no, never leave you. He will not ever, never, he will never forsake you. It is emphatic, something that we could rest our life upon is the constant presence of the Lord and the constant care. So we may be bold to say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Okay, only 14 or so more verses. (laughs) We'll move quickly. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, which have no profit who which have not profited, those who have been occupied with them. Now, the thought here in verse seven is towards those who have in the past ruled over you a little bit later, he goes to those who are ruling over you. But the point is this. We need to remember those examples that have been set before us of those who the Lord gave us as leaders who had authority over us, those people that we've seen walk in faith in the Lord and see the outcome of their faith. It's a reflection back, if you will, To Hebrews 11. Hey, remember all those examples of people in your life who God has used to help grow you. And as I so often say, mold you and shape you more and more into the image of Christ. Remember them. Remember those examples of people who have walked in faith and consider the outcome of their contact, the working out of faith in their life. And then he makes a statement in verse eight that seems out of context, but it's really not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So often as Christians, we read the Bible and we read the life of Paul and we see what God did through Paul. We see how God ministered to Paul and sustained his life. We read the Old Testament and the miraculous outworkings of the power of God through men and women of old. And we think, yeah, well, of course. They're people of great faith. God would never do that through my life. That's not true. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His eyes still are searching to and fro, looking for one righteous man. One righteous woman, that he woman that he can pour his spirit upon and in and use in mighty and powerful ways. We can look at those people who have come before us and helped shape who we are, and know that the same God who shaped that life is the same God today and tomorrow that can shape my life. And when I realize that, then the next verse comes into play. I don't have to be carried to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along because my life is established upon a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Listen, you don't have to go looking for anything new. Exhaust yourself in the old. This book is unlike any other book. If I give you an algebra book and I tell you to study it for 20 years... And at the end of 20 years, you, you don't get algebra? I'm thinking you have a learning deficiency. <laughs> but this book, this book, I can give it to you and tell you to study it for the next 20 years. And in 20 years, you're barely mine scratch the surface of mining the riches that could be found right here. When we realize he's the God, he's God and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't need to look for anything new. I just need to keep coming back to that which he's already given me and not be distracted by all those other things. And as he says here, even now talking about where they find themselves, being drawn to things like foods which have had no profit for anybody. He makes this statement, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle, have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach for we have no continuing city but we seek the one to come. And so he goes back to this discussion real quickly of the old system with an eye on the day of atonement where the bull and the sheep are slaughtered and their blood is poured over the altar for the sins of the priests first and then the people. He says, on that day, not even the priests are able to partake of the meat of those sacrifices. Those sacrifices are taken outside the city and burned completely. During the year, the other sacrifices the priests could partake of. But on this day, they could not partake of this. He says, that's a table they couldn't eat at, but they also can't eat at the table that's been set for us. Picture, as it were, the communion table that we come to um, often and we partake of that in remembrance of Christ's death on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood. That's a table that you can't go back and forth from. You can't be a priest in the tabernacle or temple and partake of those things, and then come outside of the temple and partake of the table that's been set for us, those two tables are mutually exclusive because the one table became man's way of being right with God as opposed to God's way of man being right with him. And even Christ, so he could be the God of the people, his blood was shed outside the city. And the exhortation is, come away from the old things, renounce the old things, and come to the table Christ set for you. with his broken body and his shed blood. For us today, I mentioned it earlier, there are so many different things we can place faith in. We can place faith in ourselves, in our money, in people, in positions. Fill in the blank. Of all those things we can place faith in, none of that can be blended with the sacrifice of Christ. We are called to place our faith fully in the one who died for us. Let us come and be willing to bear his reproach upon ourselves why or let me ask this why wouldn't we do that I think the answer is right here in verse 14 why wouldn't we come to Christ I think for many it's because they see this world as their continuing city the things of this world as their continuing city. But we who have faith in Christ, we don't seek the things of this world. No continuing city here, but we seek the city that is to come in the heavenlies, and we live our lives for that. Therefore, by him, Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So he said, the outworking of a life who is looking toward the city that is to come is an outworking of a life of faith that manifests itself In praise and worship. Not just that which we sing. Which we did here. Already this morning. Not just the praise of our lips. But the praise. Of our lives. As well. Where he says. Giving thanks. Let that be the fruit of our lips. But do not forget to do good and to share. That's as much a sacrifice as the sacrifice of praise of our life. In fact, that's the total sacrifice. The total sacrifice is with our mouths and with our actions that we would sacrifice unto the Lord. He now comes and says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. So those that God has put in your life as authorities, obey them and be submissive. Why? Because they've been, one, lifted up and put there before God. And your understanding is they also will be held accountable by God for how they lead you. So, as you've come to serve or to live your life, and God gives you those who rule over you, live a life that is submissive or bears up under them. For they've been given to you by God to watch out for your souls, and they will give an account. And then he throws in there, let that account of your life be a joy to them and not grief. Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you sooner. The writer says, pray for us, I would say pray for us as we lead this ministry. Pray for us that the Lord would be directing us. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete or mature in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's closing out with a doxology or actually a benediction, a prayer for them. And I love how he says, May the God of all peace who brought the Lord Jesus Christ and sent him into this world, may he make you complete for every good work to do his will. It's his job to make you complete. It's his job to work through his Holy Spirit to affect his will in your life. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in a few words. I love that, 13 chapters, a few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace with you all. Be with you all. Amen. Amen. So, I think Pastor Mike's going to come up at this point. But as we wrap up chapter 13, all of it has been about showing us this great high priest that we have. And then living a life of faith in him. Amen. Amen.